All right, it's a new semester and there's a new Cascades. There is a new Bachelor and, um, and we're going we're gonna to start a new series. Uh, this semester at RUF, we are going to be working through and exploring uh, the Old Testament book of Judges. And some of you say, why? Well, really, why not is kind of my response. Uh, it, we really do believe here at RUF that all of the Bible is inspired by God and therefore relevant and applicable to your life and to mine. But also, the book of Judges, in my opinion, is the weirdest book in the Bible, as you will find out in this passage that we're about to read. And so I think it's really um, interesting, and you'll, if you stick around this semester, I think it'll be worth your time. So if you have this sheet in front of you, I just want to read the first eight verses of chapter one from Judges. And uh, if you would, then we'll look at it together. I'll read it for us. It says, After the death of Joshua, the Israelites asked the Lord, Who will be the first to go up and fight for us against the Canaanites? And the Lord answered, Judah is to go. I have given the land into their hands. Then the men of Judah said to the Simeonites, their brothers, Come up with us into the territory allotted to us to fight against the Canaanites. We in turn will go with you into yours. So the Simeonites went with them. When Judah attacked, the Lord gave the Canaanites and Perizzites into their hands, and they struck down 10,000 men at Bezek. It was there that they found Adonai Bezek, and they fought against him, putting to rout the Canaanites and Perizzites. Adonai Bezek fled, but they chased him and caught him and cut off his thumbs and big toes. Then Adonai Bezek said, Seventy kings with their thumbs and big toes cut off have picked up scraps under my table. Now God has paid me back for what I did to them. And they brought him to Jerusalem, and he died there. The men of Judah attacked Jerusalem also and took it. They put the city to the sword and set it on fire. This is God's word. Let me pray for us before we look at it, okay? Father, we would ask for your um, mercy and for your kindness that you would be our teacher now as we uh, begin to look at a book that is um, honestly really offensive and really hard to swallow. And so would you give us grace and be our teacher? We, we need you to. We need you to unclog our ears and to open up our eyes and to uh, soften the hardness around our hearts because we, we can't learn apart from that. So be our teacher now, we would ask, and we would pray in Jesus' name. Amen. When my wife Catherine, who you just met, whenever we go to the movie theater, I, I like to get there early because I really like to watch the trailers, you know, the previews. It's... it's it's part of the experience for me. Even when, like, you know, we have a DVD at home, I don't fast forward, I don't hit the, you know, main menu button. I like to watch the trailers because, as you know, trailers are, are they, they give you enough of the story, they give you enough of the plot line to entice you to want to watch the movie, but not so much that they spoil it for you. So Catherine and I will watch these movie trailers and we kind of morph into movie critics where she'll, you know, elbow me and be like, we have got to see that one. And, you know, I'll watch, you know, we see the next one, I'm like, lame city. We are not, we are not visiting that one at all. Now, the reason I bring this up is because what I want to do tonight is to really give you a trailer, a preview for the book of Judges. And, and I want to show you enough about the plot without spoiling the whole thing. Because this really is, if, if we were to watch this a trailer for this book, you would find out pretty quickly that it's some cross between an action movie 
and a horror movie. The, uh, the, the, the soundtrack, the music to it would be kind of creepy, but it would also kind of be enough to kind of get your adrenaline pumping. I, I would imagine Radiohead and Nicki Minaj would, would collab <laughs> together and put the soundtrack together. It'd be weird, it'd be creepy. But as you may have already kind of picked up from just this little few verses, it's unbelievably gruesome and violent and bloody. And it, so it would be rated R or something much worse. And so if you were to watch a preview, here's a few little, snip, a few little snapshots of what's to come in this book. You would see first um, this treacherous woman who is hammering a tent spike into someone's skull as they're sleeping. It's in the Bible. You, you would see um, a very large, obese, evil king having a bowel movement as a result of an abdominal stab wound to the gut. It's in the book of Judges. You would see eyeballs getting carved out of people's skulls. Uh, There's one particular story where a thousand people flee to a church, to a temple, to take refuge there, and their own leader locks them in from the outside and then sets the whole thing on fire. Uh, You would see um, an Israelite uh, militia capture two kings, decapitate them, and then walk around holding them by the hair their skulls as trophies. And uh, the gruesome climax to the whole book is a good and upstanding religious man who chops up a human corpse into pieces and then mails the pieces all over the country. It's pretty gruesome. It's pretty gross. I mean, there's no way that you can sanitize the book of Judges. Now, some of you are are thinking, okay, if this is the trailer... I don't think I want to watch that. I'm into romantic comedies. You, you, know, uh, you know, if you were here last semester at RUF, we were talking about dating and relationships. It was all like rainbows and butterflies and ice cream. And now it's bowel movements and blood and guts. But one of the things, if you stick around this semester, the question that you will have to wrestle with over and over and over again is, what in the world is this doing in the Bible? What in the world is this doing in the Bible? And you will find out quickly, this is not just a collection of inspirational stories and moral examples of, hey, go be like Samson. Oh, because he was an alcoholic and a sex addict. It's not stories like that. And so for as gruesome and as offensive and as bizarre as this book is, it really is about one thing. It's about redemption. The bloodiness and the messiness of redemption and so, I want to do things, two things tonight uh, as we watch this trailer. If you, if you want to understand biblical redemption, real, robust biblical redemption, and if you yourself want to be transformed from the inside out, and if you want to be able to change the world, these are big claims, I understand. If you want to do this, you have to understand two realities. And these are the two realities I want to talk about tonight. First, you have to understand the reality of justice. The reality of justice. Look, look back at the story with me. The context here is that the people of Israel are called by God to go into the land of Canaan, which is called the promised land, and they're called by God to exterminate everybody living there. Kill them all. And in fact, all of the problems that result are, is because they refuse to actually obey that. Now, some of you are going, okay, whoa, whoa, whoa. Kill them all. Uh, Okay. 
See, that right there is why I'm not a Christian. How can you have a God? How can you, how can you worship a God that calls his followers to kill other people? That is offensive. That right there is why I'm not a Christian. Okay, um, consider this. Um, what's going on here is this, is this thing that theologians like to call intrusion judgment. Intrusion judgment. If you think about it, the Bible says that at the end of time, there's going to be a day of judgment, judgment day, where you will stand before God and he will justly give you what you deserve. And there are a few times in the Bible where that end judgment day actually kind of, for, for, for some individuals, it's like time fast forwards for them. And that end judgment day intrudes into the present moment. It's like God takes the judgment day and injects it into the present moment. So for some people, instead of them waiting until they die to face their judgment, sometimes it happens in the middle of their life. And God says, okay, time is up for you. And sometimes he calls other people to do that. This is what the people of Israel are doing in this particular story. So look at the passage again. I'll show you where I get this. In verse 4, the Israelites are invading the city called Bezek. And the ruler of that city is named Adonai Bezek. And he gets captured by the people of Israel. And what do they do to him? Well, it says in verse 6 that they cut off his, his thumbs and his big toes. Thinking, that's not what I would have done. I mean, why? Why in the world did they do that? Well, his response, the king's response to this is actually very telling. If you look at verse 7, let me just read it. He says, 70 kings with their thumbs and big toes cut off have picked up scraps under my, my table, and now God has paid me back for what I did to them. So, so you see what he's saying? He is saying, look, my whole life, that's what I did to other kings. I captured foreign kings, and I tortured them, and I mutilated them. And it got to the point where God looked at me and said, no more. You're going to drink your own medicine. You've been torturing and mutilating people your whole life, and that comes to an end right now. And you get to taste what you've had other people do. Justice is served. He's getting what he deserves, right? So some of you are saying, okay, that might explain the whole, you know, go in and wipe people out, intrusion judgment thing. Okay, that makes sense. But still, all of that assumes that God is a God of judgment, I can't, I can't buy into this idea that, there's, that God is just this angry, vindictive monster just judging people. I, I believe in a God of love, not a God of judgment. Okay, well, consider this. Consider this. Let's say that uh, you studied really hard for your chemistry test, which may be a stretch for some of you, but let's say you did. <laughs> you studied really hard for your chemistry test, and let's say you were super prepared going into it. You, were, you, just, you knew the material flat. In fact, when, when you got the test, you pounded through it, just totally killed it. You were so familiar with it, and you were the first person to turn it in. You're never that person, but you are this time. First person to turn it in. You walked out feeling like, I, mean, I knew it. I, I nailed it. A week later, you come back, and the teacher's graded all of the exams and passes them back out, and you, you, know, you get yours that's graded, and at top, at the top in red, F. And you flip through the whole thing because you're starting to freak out. And, you know, of the 60 problems on this chemistry test, only two of them he marked wrong. Now, how would you feel? Out of, out of 60 problems, you got two wrong and you got an F. I mean, you'd be angry, right? You, you would want some sort of explanation. This would be confusing. You'd want to protest. you want to go up to the professor and, and figure out what has happened here. That feeling that you are feeling, that is you desiring justice. There is a wrong that's been done, and I want it set right. But let's just say, let's say that the professor is the chancellor, and there's, there's no higher authority to appeal to, and this particular professor says, no, that's what you get. 
I mean, how would you feel? I mean, how would you feel if there was nowhere else to go, nowhere else to turn, no higher authority to make this wrong right? You would feel like the universe is out of control, it's, it's unfair, you're getting this stain on your record for no reason. That's you wanting justice. Okay, let me give you a, a, a weightier example. Let's say somebody uh, murders your whole family, brutally murders your whole family, and, and they're captured and they're arrested and they're brought to trial and they come before the judge. And the judge looks at them and they say, and you know, they're obviously upset and obviously um, uh, remorseful. And they say, you know, judge, I, I'm so sorry that I did that. I, I, I know that I shouldn't have. I feel really terrible about it. I promise you I'll never do it again. And the judge looks at them and has compassion and bangs the gavel and says, okay, you're innocent. You're free to go. Now, how would you feel? Would you feel that justice had been served? Of course not. You would, you would want to run that judge out of town. I mean, the reality is, is that you want justice. You want justice. You want there to be judgment. And here's how else I know. Do you remember what happened um, last year when there was a spontaneous celebratory riot that broke out when Osama bin Laden was pronounced killed? Do you remember that? The word came out, Osama bin Laden has been killed. And Boone students, App State students, there was a mass of them, apparently, went over to Chancellor Peacock's house chanting, went to the football stadium chanting, and then just flooded the streets like the whole night. Now, why was that? Why, why was there celebration? It's because at some level, you, if you were involved, the students, felt that justice had been served. Here is this man who has perpetrated unbelievable evil, and it has been dealt with. Now, whether or not you disagreed with sort of the chaos of the celebration. That's one thing. But at some level, you have to admit, I, I wanted him dead. He was evil. Justice had been served. And, here, and here's the reality. My, my point is this, is that deep down, you want this to be true. You want there to be a God of judgment because you want human trafficking done away with. You want genocide stopped, right? I mean, you want poverty ended. You want cancer solved. You want there to be a God of judgment. And thankfully he is. Miroslav Volf is a Eastern European theologian. Miroslav Volf. He's a professor up at Yale University, and I happen to be friends with him on Facebook, which I feel very, um, I feel very good about myself because of that. He's not from the States. He's from Eastern Europe. In fact, he experienced firsthand the violence that took place in Eastern Europe in the early 90s. Uh, in case you're unfamiliar with what was going on there, there was a massive war that broke out in Eastern Europe, and it was all about basically ethnic cleansing. And people have said this was the deadliest conflict in Europe since World War II. He experienced that firsthand. And here's how he describes it. He describes it as a war zone. I'm going to quote him. As a war zone where the cities and villages were first plundered and then burned and leveled to the ground, whose daughters and sisters had been raped, whose fathers and brothers had their throats slit. And then he makes this thesis. He says the only way that you can convince those people who experienced that sort of atrocity, the only way that you can convince them to not pick up a machine gun and want to run right back in and perpetuate the cycle of violence, the only way that you can convince them not to do that is to assure them that God is a God of judgment and that God is a God of vengeance. And here's what he writes. I'm just going to read it. He says this. My thesis is this, that the practice of nonviolence requires a belief in divine vengeance. That will be unpopular with many. 
But it takes the quiet of a suburban home to believe that human nonviolence results from a belief in God's refusal to judge. Now, here's what he's saying. He says, the only people who can settle into the idea that God doesn't care about justice are people who have lived sheltered, comfortable, suburban lives. He said, if you have experienced massive devastation and massive cruelty, and you have experienced bitter injustice, when you hear that God is a God of justice and God is a God of vengeance, that's not jarring to you. That's actually comforting. It's only when you've lived a life and you haven't experienced any injustice at all in your quiet suburban home that the idea that God may be a God of justice, that's what's jarring to you. His thought, his, his words, not mine. Here's why this is relevant for you. Since God is a God of justice, that means that he actually takes sin seriously. And here's why this is so good. It's because that means he takes seriously the sin that has been committed against you. The abuse and the betrayal and the wounds, that does not go unchecked in God's universe. At the end of the day, that does not go unchecked. Furthermore, it's not just the, the, the abuse and the cruelty that you have endured. It, it's it's the, the oppression and the cruelty and the genocide worldwide. Human trafficking does not go unchecked ultimately in God's universe. He takes it seriously. He doesn't just look out at the world and shrug his shoulders and say, well, I'm not going to do anything about it. I'm just going to love everybody. He actually says, no, I'm actually going to set all wrongs to right one day. You will never understand redemption. You will never understand. You will never be transformed yourself. You will never be able to change the world unless you first swallow this pill, the reality of justice. Now, here's the second reality that you have to understand. I'll be brief on this point. You have to also understand the reality of grace because Martin Luther King Jr., uh, as you know, is a Christian minister and led the uh, social justice civil rights movement in the 60s. And uh, he was very famous to quote that Old Testament passage from the book of Amos saying, you know, justice will roll down. And, and if that is true, if you hear this reality that God is a God of justice, if you're anything like me, you think, okay, that is really good news. And that is really bad news. <laughs> because if, if God is unswervingly committed to punishing sin and evil, if justice is going to roll down, I'm at the bottom of that hill too. What do I do when I see the sin and the evil in me and hear about this God of justice who is out to make all things wrong set right? That's terrifying. It is unless you understand the reality of grace as well. The reality of justice and the reality of grace. Look back at the story. God is using Israel as agents of justice in this book. However, they themselves are unbelievably wicked. I mean, right? They, they, if, you, if you stick around this semester, you will see they abandon God over and over and over. They worship idols. They, uh, are, they just go crazy in this particular book. And then if, if, if you're um, paying attention, uh, you'll notice that God is also making these promises to them to say, uh, I'll be gracious with you. I'll be faithful to you. I'll be loving towards you. I'm committed to you. And you think, okay, that is a glaring contradiction. How can God be a God of justice and a God of love and grace simultaneously? It doesn't, it doesn't make sense. Because if God is a God of justice and he's absolutely committed to punishing sin and evil, then that means he's not gracious. And if, if, if he's you know, committed to grace and he's just going to let people off the hook and slide stuff under the rug, then that means he's not really just. So you see the tension there. Which, which is it? He can't be both. Well, that tension really does kind of get amplified in the book of Judges, and it doesn't get solved. 
And in fact, as the Old Testament kind of unfolds, that tension gets more and more heated and amplified, and it doesn't really get resolved either in the Old Testament. You know, I said um, earlier tonight that this story is not the only time in human history where God's final judgment breaks into the present. This isn't the only point. There is another point. Centuries later, after this particular story, God's vengeance and God's justice broke into the world again, but it didn't fall on a Canaanite king. It fell on Jesus. It's not until you get to the cross that God's justice and God's grace actually come together and then make sense. Because the claim of the Bible is that God steps into the world in the person of Jesus, and he lives the perfect life, and then he goes and dies a barbaric, torturous, mutilated death on a cross. What is he doing? What is he experiencing? He is bearing the weight of God's vengeance, of God's wrath. All of the evil and all of the oppression and all the cruelty that we help perpetrate, he bears, he receives, he, he, it falls on him instead of us. Now why? What would possess anyone to do that, to undergo that? It's because he loves you. It's because it's out of love. I mean, think about this. Let's just say that you've committed this horrible crime and you're guilty and you're arrested and you're brought before the judge. And you come before the judge and the judge looks at you and says, you're obviously guilty. I I can't just let you go free. Otherwise, you know, I'd lose my job. That's unjust for me to do that. I have to punish you. So he declares you guilty and, you know, off you go to the uh, execution room, the electric chair. But let's say as you're on your way there, he, he stops you and says... Uh, I, I see somebody has volunteered to come in and to take your place. And you look around, you don't see anybody, and say, who, I, I mean, I, why, I don't, what's happening? And he says, uh, someone has volunteered because they love you so much that they would rather themselves undergo the death penalty so that you might live. That's how much they love you. And the judge stands up and takes off his robe and steps down from off the desk and then goes down and goes to that electric chair for you. And justice is served. And simultaneously, it's an act of grace. Both of those two things come together and lock. And and unless you believe in a God of justice, a God of judgment, unless you believe that, you will never know how much he loves you. You will never know. Because unless you're willing to see that he is a God of justice, you will never know how much he loves you because you'll never know how much he was willing to suffer for you. There are lots of students at App who consider themselves moral, moralistic, and religious, And if they think about their relationship with God, their relationship with God is basically, yeah, God is just and holy and demanding, and I've got to be really good uh, to stay in his favor. And if they were to tell you about their relationship with their God, uh, it wouldn't bring them to tears. It wouldn't move them. It It wouldn't energize them. It wouldn't change them. They'd just say, yeah, God is a God of justice, and I'm trying really hard to stay on his good side. And there are plenty of students at App that uh, consider themselves liberal and progressive and modern, and they would say, you know, if God exists at all, if he does exist, then he, he, is, uh, he doesn't exclude anybody. He, he loves everybody all the same. And if those people were to tell you about their relationship with that God, uh, that wouldn't move them to tears. That, that, that wouldn't change them. That wouldn't electrify them. That wouldn't transform them. It's only when you see that the biblical God, the true God, is infinitely just and infinitely gracious at the same time. That is what moves you because you see how much it it cost him to love you. God is so just 
that he had to die for you. And yet he is so gracious that he was glad to die for you. And when those two things really do come together, that's what begins to move you and melt you at your core. No other option will do it. In a few moments, we're, um, we're going to sing this hymn uh, by John Newton. John Newton's the same guy that wrote Amazing Grace. You may be familiar with that one. He wrote this hymn, and I want to just read an excerpt from it before we sing it together, okay? Uh, it, the name of the song is uh, Let, Us Wonder, uh, Let Us Love and Sing and Wonder. And here's, and here's the, the verse I want to highlight. It says this, Let us wonder, grace and justice join and point to mercy's store. He's saying, okay, grace and justice join and intersect together at the cross. When through grace in Christ our trust is, which is just an old clunky way of saying, when by grace we actually trust Jesus. And then here's the line I want to highlight. Justice smiles and asks no more. And that really is the grand finale. Because what that means is his justice is satisfied by his grace. It's done. His justice smiles and it requires nothing more from you. You don't have to worry about whether or not your behavior is going to keep you in or if your bad behavior is going to jeopardize it. It's done. It's finished. That's what Jesus said at the cross. It is finished. That's God pounding the gavel and saying, it's done. You are cleared. When you have responded to him by faith, it's done. Justice has smiled and it's asking no more from you. Now, if you really believe that, if you took that down into your heart and you really believe that, how would that transform you? Furthermore, if you believe that, how would that enable you to change the world? Here's how. Two quick reasons, then we're done. If you really believe that God's justice is satisfied by God's grace at the cross, then here's what this means. You wouldn't, need, you wouldn't feel the need to retaliate. Anytime somebody hurts you, anytime somebody wounds you, you wouldn't have to take up vengeance and preserve justice and make sure that that person's wrong is set to right because you know that one day God will. Even the people that deeply, violently abuse you and offend you, you can actually look to them and say, okay, I don't have to judge this person because I know that God is one day. God's going to make all wrongs set to right, including mine. And therefore that frees me to not retaliate, but to actually forgive them, to love them, to serve them. But do you see how this gives you resources to, 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 to live a peaceful and loving and forgiving life in a very violent and a very cruel world? If you actually took this into your heart and believed that God is a God of justice and a God of grace, and this, this frees you up from having to settle all accounts of anybody that hurts you, anybody that wrongs you, you can actually be freed from that and just love people. Here's the second way. If you really believe that God is a God of ju- uh, that his justice has been satisfied by his grace at the cross, here's what this means. When you experience unbelievable suffering and hardship, and when, when life really does hit the fan, as it were, you don't have to bear this extra burden of wondering, is this God punishing me? Is this God trying to pay me back for something that I've done? What, what have I done that he's trying to, he's trying to pay me back for? When, when you actually get the gospel, that takes that, that, takes that off the table God God can't be punishing you. He can't be making you pay for something because Jesus has paid for it all. And so you can begin to look through the lens of the cross at your circumstances and say, okay, I don't know why God is allowing this to happen, but I know it can't be because he's punishing me. He's not making me pay for something. He's bringing something hard into my life to actually free me from something. He's, He's doing this out of love. And this is why Christians talk about 
in a crazy, bizarre way, rejoicing in your suffering. That doesn't make any sense unless you understand the gospel. Rejoicing in your suffering. Look, this is, uh, th- this is, this is the part of the trailer where the, you know, the screen would go dark and it would say, come into a theater near you or something like that. And this really is where we're going this semester. We're going we're gonna to jump into this book, and it is uh, weird. It is offensive. It's one of the most bizarre books in the Bible. And yet, it amplifies and it showcases God's justice and God's grace in a beautiful way simultaneously. And my hope really is, is that we explore this book together, is that as you begin to understand that and see that and believe that, and take the gospel in deeper and deeper into your soul, that you will be moved, that you will be moved to your core, and that you will never be the same. Me too. So I'd like to invite you to come back and join us this semester. Let me pray. Father, I pray that you would give us eyes of faith to see that you are a God that does not wink at sin. You do not brush it under the rug, but that you actually deal with it. And you have dealt with it decisively at the cross. And I pray, Father, that you would give us faith. And would you, would you encourage us? Would you melt our hearts? Would you move us to see how beautiful and how costly salvation is to you and how free it is to us? And would that change us? Would that make us different people? That's our prayer. And we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.